My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charity isn't charity. It is human gifting. It's a, it's a gift that you owe yourself and you owe the world and you get so much back. And, you know, I didn't feel sorry for people so much as I had so much respect. I have seen some smart, resourceful, tough, interesting, inspiring people. And I came back with a lot more than I left there. Welcome to A Way to Go, a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. Our guest today is Stephanie March, who mainstream TV fans know for her longtime role as Alexandra Cabot, the beloved assistant district attorney on everyone's favorite hard-boiled TV show, Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Indie comedy fans know her as the mayor on Neon Joe, Werewolf Hunter. Beauty fans know her as the co-founder of She Spoke, the custom lipstick and makeup company based in Soho in New York City. But Geraldine and I, and many others around the world, know her as the ultimate globe-trotting philanthropist. Stephanie travels the world doing humanitarian work on behalf of such groups as One Kid, One World, and Planned Parenthood, where she's a board member, and World of Children, where she's also a board member. Not to put too fine a point on it, she is helping to make the world a better place for everyone, though especially for women and children, through her advocacy and her travels. Stephanie, welcome. Pavia, that was such a nice introduction. I think I'm going to cry. That was, that was lovely. Thank I'm you. just reciting the facts, ma'am. We should also add that Stephanie has been a big part of Fathom since the beginning, both as a supporter and a contributor, who shared her stories about humanitarian trips and other kinds of trips to Kenya, Cambodia, India. Where else, Stephanie? You've uh, done a lot of writing for us. Uh, let's see. For Planned Parenthood, I've been to Bolivia and Uganda and Senegal, uh, Senegal, India and Nepal and uh, Chile with uh, World Children Award. Uh, Kenya with One Kid, One World, which was very, very meaningful for me. And when and how did charitable endeavors become a big part of your travels? You know, I've always loved traveling. My parents were excellent travelers and my sister was a traveler. We're, we have a little nomad in us. And so when I started to travel... Um, to places like India, I became acutely aware, as one is, of um, how disproportionately lucky we are to live in the United States. You know, I think to be born loved in the 20th century in America to an upper middle class family who had health insurance, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I live better than probably most people have ever lived since people have been living on the planet in terms of what I have and the care I have and the facilities that are available to me in this country. And the disparity is, uh, is not something that you can ignore. And so I always felt when I was traveling that there needed to be a way for me to both contribute to the place I was visiting as a, a, a tourist, but as a, as a person, as a human being. And so I, I really became involved with these organizations where travel was a significant part of my board membership because I felt it was a great way for me to get perspective on my life and to contribute both financially and in person to places that mattered to me. 
And did these particular organizations find you or did you find them? You know, I found one and then the rest found me. Um, My great-grandmother founded Planned Parenthood of West Texas, actually. So my family in 1938. So my family has always... 1938? In 1938. What a badass. Ruby Webster March. Come on. I know. Isn't she the best? Then they closed it. Then they reopened it. Incredible. Um, so she really, that, that is the beginning of a multi-generational involvement in Planned Parenthood. And girls in education, actually, I found One Kid, One World through my best friend is named Robin Fenner. Her husband is John Fenner, and he is a Hollywood writer. And his writing partner is Josh Bicell. And so I have come to know these people over the years as friends. And Josh and Tracy McCubbin founded One Kid, One World by themselves. It's a 100% volunteer organization. Josh did it because he went to the Sudan with his uncle when the, the, in the height of that terrible conflict. Josh found himself in one of the refugee camps, and he saw that all of the larger organizations that shall remain unnamed, although I am dying to name them, were fighting over who got to have top billing on the sign that was in front of the refugee camp while no one else was really doing anything. And he thought, you know, if you show up with a teacher and a couple of soccer balls, you could change these kids' lives. Meanwhile, these larger institutions are sort of paralyzed by bureaucracy and deeply entrenched. And unless you are involved in making your own organization obsolete, you are not really in philanthropy. So Josh took it upon himself to get into girls and education, specifically in Africa and Central America, because he felt that's where he could make the greatest difference. And he was so inspiring to me. And he and Tracy were so impressive to me. And I thought, I really have to see what they are doing. And so I went to Kenya with them in 2007. And I remember saying to my sister the night before I left, you know, I'm kind of nervous. And she said, why? Because you're going to Africa with a bunch of complete strangers for two weeks and you don't have a cell phone and you won't be able to talk to anybody or communicate back home. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's that's why I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's it. I had a, a travel kit that I now always have stocked. I, you know, it's got the Z-Pack and the Cipro and the liquid Band-Aid and the, you know, I have every kind of conceivable medication that I just keep in my back because, you know, you can't, you can't get can't a lot of... Can't be too safe. Can't be too safe and you can't get any help. I, I actually, my appendix burst once when I was visiting my sister in San what Francisco. What do you mean it burst once? How many times? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's it. Once upon, a t- <laughs> once upon a time, my appendix burst and I happened to be visiting my sister in San Francisco. And while I was in the hospital, I did a mental rundown of all of the places I've been where I would have died if that had happened. And um, 80%, I mean, I could only think, there was one clinic I went to in Nepal with the world of children, and I thought, no, they they could have helped me there. They could have helped you. They could have helped me there, but otherwise I would have been in some pretty big trouble. Good thing you don't have that appendix anymore, Stephanie. I got rid of it on purpose, maybe. I willed it into an obsolescence. So tell us about that trip that you took to Kenya with One Kid, One World, because I know that was a really important trip for you. It was so, so meaningful for me. Um, First of all, I made some terrific friends on the trip who have now been my friends for over a decade. And it was exceptional to me in that I thought I was going to help them, meaning the schools that we were visiting and the communities we were supporting through the schools. And instead, I, I learned a really important lesson in that it was really humbling and that they helped me just as much. And charity isn't charity. It is human gifting. It's a it's a gift that you owe yourself and you owe the world and you get so much back. And, you know, I didn't feel sorry for people so much as I had so much respect. People who live in conditions that are considerably less luxurious than ours, I have seen, I have seen some smart, resourceful, tough, 
interesting, inspiring people. And I came back with a lot more than I left there. And it began a lifetime love affair with that kind of travel. And that country in particular, I don't want to play favorites, but I did go to the Ukraine with a world of children one year. And it was in um, on the Russian border. And it was in October. And the hospital we were visiting, the doctor's bathroom did not have soap in it. And it was gray and it was dark and it was Eastern Europe in October. And I was in Kenya in November and it was beautiful and the music was spectacular and the people were gorgeous and smiling and wonderful. And I thought, this is the cradle of the civilization that I want to think of as civilization. I fell in love with it and I've been back six times. I'm getting choked up. I've been back about six times. Um, both in that capacity and as a part of my honeymoon. And uh, I just think it's it just changed my life forever. Do you find that it's difficult to travel without without a humanitarian purpose now? Is, do you find that it's um, it's difficult when, you know, to kind of put that aside in, in a way? It's funny. You know, I just, I just went to Paris with my husband uh, earlier this year, and I thought, I am such an asshole. All I'm doing is shopping and eating. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it felt impossibly luxurious. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And, and, and boy, I'm, I have so much gratitude for my life. And I don't think that you, you know, you don't get any points for, for not being happy and not taking advantage of wonderful moments. But it is different. I, I always feel like I have to kind of balance it out, if that makes sense. Like if I have one trip like that, I have to have another that is, yeah. um, has a more more serious capacity. And the other thing I will say, aside from just charitable giving, um, traveling to another country in the capacity of visiting a school or visiting a hospital or visiting is is the most wonderful way to see a place because you are exposed to people and sites that you would not otherwise be a part of. You kind of, you kind of get to live an, a, a life, an everyday life in that in that country, no museums, um, no special hotels, and it is, you know, you're often in people's homes, and it is the most incredible way to experience another country. It's very, um, it's, as a traveler, it's really satisfying. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stephanie, tell us what you're doing, though, when you go to these places and you go to the hospitals and you go to the schools. Are you, like, walking up and guest teaching a class? Are you helping kids with their arithmetic? Are you putting Band-Aids? Or is it, tell us, I mean, what are what are you actually doing for the two weeks that you are in Kenya and wherever you are? You know, it varies from place to place. If you're visiting a clinic, say, and that's a, a lot of what I've done with World of Children, it is 
giving the people who are running the clinic, the doctors, the opportunity to demonstrate what they do and how they help and their programming. I'm a, I've been in operating theaters three times now, not for the faint of heart. And it's almost, um, it's a presentation in order to get other people on the trip to, you know, donate financially. Donate yeah, it, it, it's like a, like a site visit is the most powerful way to attract new board members and more money because when you can see what your dollar is doing in action, not being at the top of the sign at the refugee camp, but when you can watch a medical professional explain to you how they are fixing spinal injuries with pieces of PVC plastic they have found and sterilized and created a new way to... Like, we saw a, a clinic in Nepal. Dr. Ben Scotta is his name. His son is Dr. Ben Scotta as well. And they fix children who suffer from uh, muscular deformation. And they have fashioned tools from something you would find in a hardware store to straighten people's spines and legs and arms. Now, when you see somebody doing that in the middle of Nepal... That's, by the way, the place I would want my appendix to burst. You, you cannot help but be astonished, give money, and encourage others to participate in that capacity too. And so much of being a person working in the field trying to change somebody's life is being seen and being recognized and being appreciated for all that you're doing. These schools that we go to with One Kid, One World, it's so much fun to be in a science lab with a group of girls who have their first science lab and they show you what they're working on and you go through their schoolwork with them and they show you their dorm rooms and their bunks. And, you know, they don't have parents who have visiting day. They don't have a, a brand new soccer field and a fancy bus to take them to their tournaments. They don't, they don't have a lot. And so to be able to be seen and to share that with somebody who's traveled a long way is it matters to people just to be a human being and be kind and and to bear witness so this is different from a volunteerism trip that somebody could sign up for say with habitat for humanity where for 2 weeks they go to Nepal as one of my friends does and build homes you're there more in an advocacy capacity so that you then come back home and then help raise the money that these organizations need to continue to do the work that they're doing. It sounds very much like they're there to be a witness. You're there to be a witness. Now, I will say with Planned Parenthood, it's different because there is a, a significant advocacy component to Planned Parenthood. So we are advocating at, like when we were in Senegal, we went to the, uh, the court of justice, and we advocated on behalf of lawyers. Uh, we did the same thing in Bolivia. So that active legal advocacy is a huge part of my role at Planned Parenthood, as well as sex education. And sex education to the students, the young women we meet, that's also a part of my role in One Kid, One World when we visit our girls' schools. You know, there are a lot of restrictions when you receive aid, specifically from the United States, on what you can and cannot talk about. The global gag rule is a really, really big problem right Especially now. Especially with Planned Parenthood, I'm guessing, it's right? A, it's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a total nightmare. And so as I am not, when I am not traveling with Planned Parenthood, when I'm traveling with One Kid, One World, I have the freedom to discuss things that like... Birth control. Birth control, for instance, and condom usage. And um, and why is that? Why do you have the freedom to do it with One Kid, One because World? Because you're not there for Planned Parenthood. Because I'm not there for Planned Parenthood, so I'm not violating any kind of financial... Because they're just a private, small institution? Yeah, exactly. It's and they're a, it's, focused on different things. So yes. They don't have the same restrictions imposed upon them that Planned Parenthood that exactly does, right. ha, does, which is such a hot-button group. So Tracy and I can stand oh. in a classroom and say, 
you will get pregnant if you do not use birth control and you could possibly get AIDS if you do not use a condom in a way that people cannot do when they're officially operating with Planned Parenthood. Uh, the restrictions right now on family planning and girls' education about their own bodies is it's appalling for a lot of reasons, but it's going to take a whole generation of young women and completely uh, change their lives uh, for the worse. And the fact that women are not allowed access to information, just basic information, science, health, biology, uh, infuriates me. It's, it takes us back 200 years. I mean, it's crazy. So that has become something that is really at the top of my to-do list to knock off <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of what I'm, what I'm aggressive about right now. Can you talk a little bit about how One Kid, One World or Planned Parenthood or any other organization you've traveled with showcases um, the dichotomy in how people are living in a way that feels good to you and useful to you versus what we sometimes hear voluntourism can look like and what we can hear disaster tourism <sighs> looking like. First of all, with the exception of Planned Parenthood for a variety of reasons, familial and, and political, I really do prefer smaller organizations. And I give charitably to smaller organizations. I think that they have more flexibility. I think they have less bureaucracy. And I think they are more manageable, especially in these trips. They're very selective with who uh, is who goes on these trips. And I think that's an important part of it. This isn't a show we're putting on to feel good about ourselves. This is a commitment you make to get involved in it with a community and stay there. You are a guest in someone's home and you are a guest in someone's country and you must treat them with that kind of respect. If that clarifies a little bit of the attitude that I think should absolutely be a part of somebody who's on a trip like that. This isn't so I can go and check it off my list and, and make myself feel good. I'm a guest in someone's home. Can you paint a picture for us of an experience or an exchange that you had that really changed the way you think about travel? Oh, yeah. It was from my first trip to Kenya. We went to an area in the north called Samburu. And when you think about the, the beautiful exoticism of certain parts of Africa, these women in these incredible colored beaded necklaces and, and brightly colored shawls and skirts. I mean, it was like it, we're in the desert. I mean, it's the desert. It's the spindly acacias and, and red sand and dirt. And these women emerged. I swear to God, they emerged from the ether like butterflies floating towards us. And they were singing and they were chanting. And they were welcoming us in the traditional Samburu song and greeting. And I remember I was standing with my the friends I met on the trip. Uh, there were six of us. And we were wordless for a full two minutes after. And it was, we looked at each other and I cannot, and never will be able to explain to anybody else what the four of us understood in that moment to be so overwhelmed by this hospitality and this miraculous beauty in the middle of, I mean, it, it took us six hours to get there <laughs> by car from the nearest place we could spend the night. And it was astonishing. And they served us a, a wonderful meal. And, you know, you're prepared not to eat. I, I have no expectation that I should be fed when I'm coming to visit a school in the middle of nowhere. So I had about 700 kind bars in the car. Oh. And um, instead, there was there was goat and there was manioc and there were vegetables. And they, I mean, they, they really made such an effort to cook us a beautiful meal. I mean, I can I, I can barely make a peanut butter sandwich, you guys. I'm really kind of not kidding. It's not my forte cooking. 
and to be transported to this magical place and this me I mean it was like Brigadoon or something I can't explain it. it for the rest of my life I will hear that song in my head and I will hear their music and I will see them coming forward and I will know that something um, in me changed forever and, and I can never go back to the before and I love that mm. oh my god that's so sweet I know we're all going to sit here and start crying and it was pre-iPhone uh, for me so oh, like I, so it's you, even better it, it it's is even better because you yeah. don't have a bunch of idiots holding up their phones take, I mean it just happened you know what yeah, I mean it, yeah. just, it just happened and we watched it and we yeah. felt it and you lived it. I lived it. You lived it and you have the memory of it. Yeah. yeah. I have a two-parter question for you, Stephanie. Have you ever found yourself on the other side of the world meeting with a government minister, talking to lawyers, thinking, this is doing no good whatsoever? And I'm I do not feel like I'm wasting my time. I have definitely felt like they didn't give one damn about what I was saying. And not to be too controversial, but when you are in a room full of men who run a country, and that's most places around the world. Yeah. But when you're when you're in a room full of government officials and there isn't one woman there and you're talking about girls and birth control and their rights, you can tell that they are mentally figuring out what they're going to have for dinner. What I mean, they don't care at all. And that is why you have to go. You just have to keep showing up and showing up and showing up and showing up and not shutting up until they cannot ignore you anymore. So now let's go positive. Tell us about a moment when you felt like you and the people you were traveling with really were making a difference. This is sort of complicated. I have so many and I have so few because every time you every time you make a step forward, you realize, oh my gosh, we got we got a long way to go. We gotta keep going. I will say when we started with our primary school, Nayamasari, at One Kid One World, it's our founder, it's our flagship school. This is in Kenya. This is in Kenya. It's in, in a small town called Mibita on the shores of Lake Victoria. Paint a picture for us. When you say school, grammar school, high school, how many students? So are they a, all girls? It's a secondary school. It's for, it's technically children are, all children, but they mostly send their boys, go to school, the government-sponsored school, through what would be the eighth grade here in the United States. There is no public secondary school. So this is a secondary school for girls. And, you know, I'm 45, so most of the people my age in Kenya are, are not alive. You know, I, that hits the AIDS epidemic at just, at just the time where it, it wiped out almost an entire generation of people. So our students were largely orphans. They were being raised by their grandparents. And um, obviously it's a struggle for any family to send a child to a private school. But if you have to pay for a private school... You know, it's almost it's almost undoable. We find and refurbish existing schools. We can't you can't create a community out of the ether. It doesn't work that way. But you can build and support an existing community. That's where you have the most success. And when we started our school, I would say about thirty percent of the girls who attended were pregnant. Now, ten years later, eleven years later, actually, not one girl is pregnant and we have started a new program to support uh, financial aid for college because now 12 women have been accepted Nicely to university. Done. That's terrific. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're very proud of that. That's great. How many students are in that school at any given time? About 200. That's a big school. It's a big school and we, you know, and a lot of what we deal with, you know, you start raising for one thing like a science room and then you realize girls often don't go to school for uh, a couple of reasons. They're it's not safe. It's not safe for them to walk to school. So a dormitory is absolutely 
mandatory, and um, a clean bathroom because um, bathroom and dealing with your period or what is very embarrassing for young women, particularly when there's not a dialogue in the country about it and there's a lot of shame. A lot of girls miss school because they're having their periods and they don't know what to do and they don't have the they don't have the sanitary items that they need. And there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of stigma around it. So providing an environment in which that is okay, there's a school clinic with a nurse who can tell you about what to do. And where they even know, no. oh, it's okay. I just have my period. Exactly. Here's a pad. Here's a here's exactly. protection. So, here's So getting those students and, and retaining those students is uh, largely dependent on being able to house them and provide them with the facilities they need to take care of their bodies. Did, right. Are there ever any issues with the family doesn't want the kids to go to boarding school, or are the families grateful and happy to give their daughters an you education? Know, I would say there there are so many, man, there are so many fearsome, amazing women. The, the biggest barrier is financial, of course, because it is, you know, you can send a girl to school for an entire year for $250, but that's absolutely out of the question for a lot of people in that part of the world. And if they have $250 and they have a son and a daughter, you know, very often it's the son the who, son gets, who to gets to go to school. So by virtue of the fact that these families are are pushing for their girls to get in the school tells me a lot about the slowly changing tide around the value of women in a community and the value of girls in, in various parts of the world. And is everyone at the school being supported by the organization or some people paying their way, some people being... Some people are paying their way and some people are um, on scholarship. And some yeah. people, there's a, there's kind of a sliding scale. Yeah. Amazing. I wanted to talk for a minute about an article you wrote for Pavi and I at Fathom a few years ago where you outlined your travel giving principle, which we love and we reference all the time and put in our book called The Humanity Tithe. And uh, we're wondering if you can explain what the humanity tithe is. Well, it does help me feel a little bit better about my more luxurious trips, I'll tell you that. Uh, the humanity tithe is, I, I believe that there is a certain percentage of what you spend on a trip that should go towards supporting something in that community in which you were visiting. And it started, I really started thinking seriously about it when I went to Cambodia, purely for pleasure. This is many, many years ago now. And in our hotel room, there was a, a, a and I'd never seen it before. It was a piece of paper that said, our hotel supports the school and supports the students of the people who work in our hotel um, to attend this school. If you are interested in participating in helping with the education of the people who work in this community, we would be happy to donate a portion of your hotel bill, or you can choose to donate a portion of your hotel bill towards the school. And I thought, this is why doesn't everybody do this? This is amazing. It's of of course I would like to. I don't need your soap or your conditioner or that straw bag. I could just take a certain percentage of my money and put it toward and I do prefer schools because I think it's you know, education is one of the few silver bullets. You know, you can it, it always works. It's always no one suffers from an education. You don't right. mishandle, um, you know, knowledge. Knowledge exactly. <laughs> they're they're not swapping out the vaccines for something else. You know, it's. It, a school you can really get behind. And I thought about that, and I just started to do that everywhere I go. So I ask the hotel if there's a community that they support. It's actually a really good place to start because so many people – I was in – I'm all over the place right now, but I'm specifically thinking about human trafficking. I have visited a couple of places where uh, it's to rehabilitate people, generally young women, who have been trafficked. And one of the ways in which – not only is it – incredibly 
you know, psychologically scarring, but you need to give people a skill, a job skill, in order to transition them back into a world that is more supportive and healthy for them. And so often it is working in hospitality. A lot of the people who work in hotels are people who have been through programs like that. And so I have found that increasingly a hotel is a great place to ask where you can donate because they're so often associated with organizations like that. Right. And they're employing people who are they're, directly from the community. Exactly, exactly. And so the humanity tie, I mean, partly it's money, but one of the things you go into in this article is you can find out beforehand, do they need pencils? What do they need in the community that we're going to, they, that you're going to, and then just put the stuff in your suitcase? That is exactly right. Now, I will tell you, when I started, it was so much harder, I mean, the world has really – the interwebs have really changed the world in the last 15 years. So bringing things physically used to be a much bigger part of my travel because it was so difficult to get goods and services to places. It is less true now. I, I, I like to ask in advance in case there's something that's very specific. But more often than not, it's actually more cost effective to – Bring, give the money. Them the, bring the money for them bring to go. The like, like we used to bring things uh, for One Kid, One World from the States all the time. And now actually it's more cost effective for us to go to Nakamot, which is the uh, Walmart of Kenya, and spend our money there so that we can buy more in bulk in- and, and, and support Nakamot and not, you know, Walgreens. Though I want to say I was absolutely influenced by your article when I went to Cuba when the people-to-people visas were, were being opened up. And I got in touch with a local charity there, and what I brought down was really high-quality tampons. Oh, my that, God. A, a whole suitcase full. That's what their request you was. You cannot get – I'm just going to say it right now. You cannot get a tampon anywhere but the United States of America, an awesome pharmacy in France or the U.K. No, and that's it. Yeah. There are no tampons in the world. There are no tampons. So I am I, laughing, but I have complete understanding for bringing down a suitcase of high-quality tampons. Yeah, it was a – got a few raised eyebrows at the airport. But but they won't – but, you know, they, they, they will barely make eye contact right, with you, which right. is the great part. You can always get it through. Exactly. Yeah. I do bring candy a lot, actually. And and our country director in One Kid, One World, Peter Mikodita, who's amazing. He's probably going to be the president of Kenya one day. He says, Stephanie, don't bring candy. They, they don't need candy. They need – and I'm like – what fun person doesn't bring candy? Well, I mean, come yeah. on. Just a little candy. <laughs> I want to just quote something that you did, that, that you wrote in this article, which, as Geraldine said, we also put in our book. I'm going to plug our book right now. Our book is called Travel Anywhere and Avoid Being a Tourist. But the reason why I'm also plugging the book is it's relevant to what we're talking about. There's an entire chapter on volunteer travel and traveling when you, as we say on Fathom, travel for the good. But you wrapped up this article so el- eloquently. I want to quote it. You say, quote, A little real help, donated locally and used immediately, is a great way to express your gratitude. After all, you, the traveler, have been so thoroughly enriched by your host country. Good manners dictate a thank you. Stephanie, that's such a nice way of thinking about things. Oh, I I didn't lie. I I feel like that about it. Thanks for saying so. Stephanie, what's one thing that our listeners can do? What's one small way that they can take a step towards becoming philanthropists when they travel? I th- I say start with your own version of the humanity tithe. Ask your hotel, call ahead, and see if you can put one thing in your suitcase or make one donation locally. And just, it's so easy. It takes, you guys, it takes 10 minutes. And like so many things, like with jobs or friends, or one thing generally leads to another. That first step, that first interaction you make will 
it will only lead to more and probably greater involvement. Because inevitably, you're going to meet somebody or some person who is so inspiring that you can't get them out of your head that you just have to make them a part of your life. So, Stephanie, what do the travel plans on the horizon look like for you? Okay, my travel plans are the following. I'm desperate to go to India. I'm planning to go to Kenya with One Kid, One World in the spring and to to Peru with Planned Parenthood Global. And that's for work. Do you have any... um, India is going to be part work, part fun. Peru is probably going to be part work, part fun, too, because Machu Picchu is not included in the clinic tour, (laughs) rather unsurprisingly. (laughs) But I cannot go to Peru and not see that. And Kenya, I always, I, I finally figured it out. Always add two or three days on to the trip that you're about to take in whatever capacity, because I call it while you're there. I mean, while you're there. Right, you may as well. You've you've got 72. Nothing in America is so important. I mean, I don't have children. So nothing in America is so important that I can't spend an extra 72 hours and see, say, Lamu or uh, the Ngorogoro Crater or whatever. Take a minute to to have a little fun and appreciate just how beautiful the world is. Stephanie, if people want to find out more about One Kid, One World or what you do with Planned Parenthood – where should we send them? You should absolutely send them to onekidoneworld.org, and you should send them to Planned Parenthood. Just just Google Planned Parenthood. There are a thousand different ways to become involved, either in your local organization or at the federal level or in global. You know, global is my passion, of course. And it's not the most popular thing to say, but, you know, money really helps. <laughs> it really does. And I, that seems I, very popular. It's, it's, very, it's, you know, it's a really – it's a – it's a great way to start, and it's the most immediate way to help somebody. So if you're at all curious about more information or possibly donating, I would suggest that you go to those two websites. And let's also add that you don't need to be a kajillionaire in order to donate some money. Every little bit helps, right? Absolutely. What we, what you can do with $100 around the world would shock you. It goes very far. Stephanie March, you are an inspiration as ever and a gracious woman and a dear friend and Thank you so much for being on our podcast and for sharing your stories and your heart around the world. I will tell you that my involvement with Fathom has been one of my absolute favorite parts of my life. So I have have to thank you, too, also. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And, you know, leave us a five-star review. A Way to Go is a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. You can find the details we talked about in the show notes and on our website, fathomaway.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter when you're there. You can get in touch with us anytime at podcast at fathomaway.com and follow us on all social media at at fathomwaytogo. Please tag your best travel photos, hashtag travel with fathom. If you want to really go deep on the travel inspiration, pick up a copy of our book, Travel Anywhere and Avoid Being a Tourist. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. And we'd like to thank our producer, editor, and mixer, Marcy Depina, and our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. 
Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.